Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hey, Vince. Hey, Emma. How are you? Good. So, so glad to be uh, reconnecting with you and uh, exciting to be recording this for the Buddhist Geeks. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the science of compassion. Um, and I should say, you know, your background is really interesting. You've got a, a new book coming out called The Happiness Track. Uh, you're also the science director at Stanford University's uh, Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education Center. Um, I usually just call it CARE. You write articles. Uh, you've been a contributor to Harvard Business Review. I was just reading uh, an article out recently that uh, about um, how meditation benefits CEOs. Um, mm-hmm. You've written for Psychology Today, Scientific American Mind. So yeah, really, you're, you're doing a lot to kind of popularize uh, and, and get out there in a broader way some of the um, kind of uh, emerging benefits, I guess, and practices mm-hmm. that are connected to mindfulness and and now compassion. Um, so yeah, it's great to have you on the show and to, to be able to Thanks. explore Thanks, I'm happy to things. be here. Really an honor. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so the science of compassion. This is something I... This is something I've been really curious about lately because mindfulness has been getting so much of the attention. And, you know, for anyone who really has a background in in contemplative practice, you kind of know that mindfulness is just kind of one of many ways of training the mind and of Mm -hmm. working with, you know, experience. Uh, And compassion is, you know, arguably one of the other most important, um, at least in terms of the Buddhist framework, has been one of the most important um, uh, ideas and also practices. Um, so I was curious, where is the science of compassion stand right now? And, and like, how is that developing and where, where is it going? What are we, what are you finding, you know, on the, on the empirical front, um, in terms of, of what compassion is and how it affects, um, people? Well, uh, what we're seeing in the literature is that, um, the most profound need that we have as human beings beyond, uh, food and shelter is that of social connection. And, um, you know, whether you're, uh, whether you're an infant or whether you're an elderly person, it is hugely predictive of your well-being and, uh, not only psychological well-being, but your physical health, not just your physical health, but the, you know, um, the rapidity with which you recover from disease and even your longevity. Um, the opposite is true, you know, you know, for people who lack social connection, um, it's a huge predictor of um, earlier mortality, but also um, depression, anxiety, and you know, um, even antisocial behavior, violence, etc., um, and suicide. So, um, uh, you know, one thing that uh, we know is that we are wired to connect to others through empathy. Um, that's why we cringe when we see someone, uh, for example, tripping. Uh, or maybe you have tears come to your eyes when you see someone else's tears come to their eyes. Uh, whether those are happy tears or sad tears, it's the same process. It's an empathic response physiologically. We are wired to um, kind of mirror other people and um, and thereby sense what they're feeling. So that's something we're completely wired for. But in our current day and age, with the pace of life, um, very high stress levels, etc., um, we automatically um, become a little bit less empathic. And there's research that shows that stress um, can lower your empathy and your feeling of connection to others because you're focused on yourself. Stress leads to self-focus, and that's 
very natural and evolutionarily adaptive because, you know, when you're stressed, you need to get out of whatever situation you're in. But if you're chronically stressed, you can be chronically self-focused. And the problem that we're seeing in this time and age when people are living further and further away from each other and, you know, working in faster and faster-paced environments and using mostly technology to communicate is that there's a lack of that social connection. So we lose touch with that. We lose touch a little bit with our ability to be empathic. Um, but what research is showing is that compassion is actually, and that ability to empathize and connect with others in a really meaningful, human, um, loving way is um, enormously predictive of, of well-being, um, physical well-being, psychological well-being. Um, but also, um, it, it just even at the level of the brain, you see that you know, you're, you get a, a, a happiness response in the brain when you see money being given to charity, for example. Um, and it's the same kind of response that you get when you, when you yourself receive money, for example. And other studies have shown that if you go and um, spend money on someone else, you actually feel happier than when you spend it on yourself. So th- there's an overwhelming amount of research actually showing that um, compassion and being of service to others and doing things for others and being kind are hugely predictive of happiness and this is something we forget because marketing marketers and and uh, and other messages we get in in our society are all about you know do things for yourself purchase things achieve things um and those are the messages we hear over and over again um it's a dog eat dog world it's you first etc but that that messaging actually um is completely counter to the research um in terms of what will predict your well-being your health um not to say that we need to use selfish uh uh reasons to do these things because research also so shows that if you're compassionate but you're doing it for selfish reasons you don't actually get the benefits mm. but um uh, it's important to remember that um you know actually happiness is derived from a life that's very much lived in, in connection with others especially when you're doing something for someone else and i think everyone who has been of service in some way and and we all have um you can tell from your own experience how incredibly awesome it feels um and how and and that i think is an indicator of just how adaptive it is and how natural it is for us mm-hmm. okay gotcha so you know this is uh, I, I was telling you last time we spoke that um a big focus for us in the new year is on the theme of ethics and mm-hmm. you know I'm, I'm sure you know because you've been sort of um uh, had a foot in the Buddhist world, it sounds like, or at least aware of the kinds of conversations and oh, yeah. stuff happening there. And you also got a foot in the science world and a foot in, you know, popularizing these ideas and getting them out there in a broader way. And so, you know, a lot of the conversation in the Buddhist world has been around, um, uh, quote unquote, mindfulness, um, which is a, tr- yeah. a term I first heard um, actually at our first conference in 2011. I'm sure that wasn't the first time it was used, but that's the first time I heard it. And, um, and then a lot of the, uh, the criticism, I guess, or the, the concern on the side of Buddhist teachers and leaders and practitioners has been around the, what I call the unbundling of ethics from uh, meditation and more specifically even me- mindfulness from meditation. Yeah. Um, and compassion too. You know, I'd say you know, compassion being part of the mm-hmm. traditional meditative um, uh, approach. Um, but when it gets kind of unbundled and, and it's no longer Part, where ethics as it was taught in those traditions is no longer part of the larger package, there, there's this concern, this fear, like, oh, well, then we're just going to either not act ethically or, um, or we're going to adopt some sort of ethic that is, um, that's, like, corrupt in some way. 
um, we're going to utilize you know mindfulness and compassion in service of something like really terrible, um, and that seems to be the general fear. Um, yeah. Is that something you've come across that critique and, and like how do how do you uh, how do you work with that in, in your work since you're dealing so much with that that those sort of unbundled and re um, you know recommunicated ideas and practices? Yeah, I think this is really interesting, and um, I think I think it's true that ethics are definitely required. Um, but it's a mixed um, it's a mixed thing. So I think that if you're someone who meditates um, frequently, and let's say you don't have an ethics practice of any sort, um, but you're a calmer person, that may you know if you you know if you have values of your own, then great. Like you being a calmer, more mindful, and attentive person is you don't need the ethics training. Now, if you ask an ISIS terrorist to meditate every day maybe that person will become more focused on whatever their goal is, which could be a harmful one. That's, I don't know, that's an empirical question. But I do think that in a lot of ways, the the press is responsible for um, creating this mindfulness trend. But I also think that as mindfulness researchers or practitioners, we have encouraged the press to really run with the research to encourage people to meditate. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. on the one hand, that's been kind of a goal because we think meditation is useful for people. But then, of course, we end up with Mac mindfulness because then it becomes this commodity that's out there. It's, you know, it's going to be the next billion-dollar industry after yoga and, and so forth and so on. Um, so in a sense, we're also responsible for that because we push that out there. Um, so it's kind of a mixed bag. On the one hand, people are benefiting. On the other hand, it may have been pushed out as this secular practice but it doesn't come from a secular practice. It comes from, from a religious tradition that is very much anchored in ethics, which is Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever tradition it is derived from. So I think it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you know, the mindfulness has really allowed more people to think meditation is normal rather than just some voodoo weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no longer that at all. It's quite accepted. Um, but on the other hand, the fact that it's been commodified means that Yes, it's been stripped. And the fact that it's been commodified as a quote-unquote secular practice uh, has, has led it to, to be that way, you know? Um, that's, of course, the problem that you run into. Yeah, yeah. You know, this, this kind of, for me, this whole conversation, you're talking about compassion and, um, you know, and, and like you said, the, the interesting that the research shows that when someone uh, – appears to be acting compassionately, doing something that you know you think is compassionate, but their actual motivations are self-serving, that it really doesn't have the same kind of physiological or psychological benefits, mm-hmm. um, strangely, and in, in, I mean, not strangely if you've ever experienced compassion in a real way, but you know it, it makes sense that, um, that those two are kind of not linked. Uh, and then what you're describing here, you know, of what happens when these things get unbundled and then kind of uh, do get communicated through the channels that we learn about things, which are, are always, um, at least in some ways, affected by our broader economic structures and systems that you know, have been in place you know, now for hundreds of years. Um, th- th- it feels like there's a paradox in all of this, or there's a tension and a conflict. And this is another part of the, I guess, of the critique of mindfulness that I keep seeing coming up, that sort of the attack on um, you know, mindfulness and capitalism. And, you know, I, I'm in the same space that you are in the sense that I, I feel, um, you know, w- 
there is a benefit to meditation practice. I mean, I've worked in various uh, startups in, inside the technology space. Um, I see that there's a power in using some of those systems and channels to build things, to grow things, to make them more efficient, to um, you know, to get things out there in a broader way that that certainly wasn't possible before these systems were created. And so that's amazing. But on the other hand, like you say, there's like these competing value sets almost uh, embedded in those systems with the with the kinds of things that that were that we you know that you and I and others are trying to get out there. It's almost like you know. Uh, yeah, it, true happiness, true compassion makes you happier, but that's not the reason to do it. And yet the marketing around it is always about making you happier. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. that, anyway, how do you deal with that sort of paradox and contradiction? Because, you know, you're writing stuff for the Harvard, yeah. Harvard Business Review. And, you know, Harvard Business Review is like in some ways you could say it's like the, it's like the pinnacle of, uh, of the sort of uh, uh, religion of capitalism. Absolutely. And so... The way I see it, you know, is that these very oversimplified messages in the press and that are helping more people start, um, but they're not, they're not the final answer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, um, I, but I just, you know, I just uh, wrote an article on, on CEOs that meditate yep. and interviewed a bunch of them for that. And many of them are very sincere people, uh, very authentic, sincere, uh, committed to, to others and, and quite humble, you know. So I, I, you know, but yeah, meditation could fall into the wrong hands, I guess you could say. But I think that um, it's good that the messages are getting out there. I don't, I, I think it's probably doing more good than harm, let's say. But I do agree that there's, there's a problem, right? It, there could be a problem if it ha- ends up in the, in the hands of someone who has an evil intention, potentially. Um, again, it's an empirical question, right? Because some, in, in some ways, some, some people who who per- perhaps perpetrate violence. Um, yes. You know, if you look into their background, they're often people who feel extremely isolated, um, who have some trauma. And so um, perhaps a meditation practice would, would soothe them. Perhaps not, but perhaps it would. And if in that case, maybe it would, it would um, help relieve them of some of their um, anger or some of their de- you know, delusional thinking. Um, it's an empirical question. It really is. Um, so it's, it's hard to tell. But, you know, research shows that and there's one study in particular that loving kindness meditation can really help reduce feelings of anger, for example. Um, in that case, um, it's a wonderful practice to do um, if, if that can help. Um, it's, 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 it is, it's a difficult question. Yeah, no, I know it, it, it is. And I, and I wrestle with it some, and I, I find like more and more the paradox of, of, of at the same time uh, wanting to respond to, the suffering and the the pain and the difficulty and the challenge of living in the modern world, but simultaneously yeah. finding that there's uh, you have to, in a sense, utilize the same systems that have generated the conditions for that social suffering in order to um, suggest uh, things that could help alleviate it. And there's an irony in that. There's a deep irony in that because. Um, you know, like on the front of your book, it says, you know, the, the path to success. Uh, mm. and, and at the same time, you know, uh, I know what you're saying is, you know, that that success comes when you give, get rid of the idea of succeeding. Mm. Um, but, but, that's, but, but, but it also, you know, when someone sees that, I doubt that's how they're understanding it. They're going, oh, oh yeah. yeah, like I feel like I'm not successful and I feel like my life sucks <laughs> and here's yeah. something that will help me. And, I mean, isn't that in a certain way, doesn't that in a certain way, at, the, at least initially, 
kind of mm-hmm. reinforce the very thing that seems yeah. to cause us to suffer. And, but, and then it, almost like a bait and switch or a Trojan horse. I mean, that's the thing totally. that feels, um, you know, a, a little dishonest about the way that meditation gets kind of marketed or, and, and, and communicated through the, through the sort of systems that we have. It's true. It's absolutely true. And we also know, and I talk about this in the book, actually, that our brain is wired to chase, um, you know, and as the Buddhists would say, to desire, you know, uh, we are, um, we, we are titillated by being able to pursue something. But in, in a way, that's what all of the marketing is. And that's how you frame. I mean, but I see some sometimes, you know, it's all about how you the title of your article that you write, it is a bait. And, um, but at the same time, so if you're trying to sell, you know, you know, a really unhealthy beverage and you're using bait for someone to do that, I couldn't engage in that kind of work. What I'm trying to do is, you know, okay, I'll write a title that I think will entice people. But my goal, I hope, uh, and I hope that that is transparent, but my goal is that, that this will help people. Um, but we, in a way you have to use the tools of the world if you want, because that's what people listen to. Um, and so the, you know, the, and, but it's also what the data show. And what I really am trying to show is the data. It's like, look at the data. The data shows you that if you're a kinder person, if you're a calmer person, if you're a more loving person, um, and if you're a more present person, you will be happier, but you'll also be more successful and you'll also have better relationships and you'll also make a difference in the world. And you'll also be a great, you know, this really positive influence for those around you. And by the way, that's going to make you more successful. It just is, you know, you're going to become more charismatic and you're going to become more, um, more beloved. That is a natural outcome of it. And I think what I'm trying to counter is that idea that, you know, you have to chase success by, by, um, you know, burning yourself into the ground and by stepping on other people um, and by constantly focusing on the future and, and, and all of those, you know, by being driven by stress, you know, and adrenaline at all moments, you know, and yeah. those are all things that are actually harming us, you know, and harming our relationships and harming others. Yeah, to- totally. I mean, it's, it almost feels like, uh, you know, the way you're framing it, it's like a bridge. It's mm-hmm. like a bridge away from a kind of more, even more, it's like a bridge from a from a more toxic way of viewing the world, and, a, and yeah. that's less reflective of of how we're actually wired. Like as you're describing earlier, how we're actually you know kind of wired for empathy, wired for connection, wired to you know to really need each other, um, yeah. and almost like moving away from that. But it still feels to me like we've got another step even to go beyond that. Like maybe in a more enlightened society, we could write you know like a, a tagline or a title that says you know like. Like, let go of your preoccupation with yourself. And that'd be, like, somehow really interesting to people. But right now, that, that is not a tagline you ever see no. on, on a, on a uh, it's, and, you know. It's too remote, yeah, people. Yeah, and, you know, and, and it's, I, I think this, going, bringing it back to the Buddhism thing, you know, I'd be curious to hear what you think of this. Uh, you know, what I've seen sort of studying the different Buddhist approaches and also really being curious about the mindfulness approach that's emerging is, you know, how in classical Buddhism, there's always this understanding that you have to practice with what they call the right view. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. That you have this particular view that informs your intention, and it really informs what you remember to return to um, when you've lost sight of right. the view, or if you've lost sight of whatever it is your focus is. And so that mind, that kind of mindfulness in the traditional sense was always about remembering to return to a certain way of of viewing reality. Right. Um, and it seems like 
pretty clear that even throughout the history of Buddhism, the view itself has changed. It hasn't. Mm-hmm. It's not always the same from teacher to teacher, community to community. You know, um, from tradition to tradition. Um, and some of the early views were more about like a total elimination of any afflictive emotions, you know, total eradication. Um, you know, which is itself a kind of aggressive way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and then the other views, you know, like later, like, you know, in the, in the Mahayana or the Vajrayana traditions, like the views were, you know, quote unquote, more non-dualistic. They weren't so much about eliminating these things as they were realizing, like, all of these things are also um, equally, you know, uh, uh, manifestations of the same basic, you know, reality of, 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 consciousness itself or the you know the buddha nature um so there, w- there wasn't a need, as much a need to eliminate them as to realize their nature and that somehow you know changes changes your relationship to it and and more and less of an emphasis on on waking up for yourself and more of an emphasis on doing it for others mm-hmm. um you know the bodhisattva ideal so so one thing i've noticed and, and i'll be curious to see if you think this is accurate you know that the mindfulness approach has a view as well and it's different in a way. And it's more about how do we optimize our mental and physical well-being? Like how do we use, you know, that non-judgmental moment-to-moment awareness or, or compassion, you know, it'd be a different way of, of phrasing it, um, a different a kind of practice approach um, to optimize, you know, our physical and mental well-being. Um, does that seem like more, more or less like kind of the view that's emerging in that space? Absolutely. It's, it's quite simplistic, really. but. That is, I think, how it's been marketed, and that's worked really well because, you know, people need simple messages. You know, just look at the politicians out there. Simple messaging. So that's how you start, you know. And I, But I do think when you embark on a contemplative lifestyle, chances are you're going to go a little deeper because you can't start contemplating, and then you're, it's, it's, gonna, it's not going to end at well-being, I think. You know, you, you become much more reflective, innerly quiet, contemplative, and... Um, you start, you know, I, I think, well, personally, I mean, I don't know that, again, this is not research back, but personally, I, I think you start to to care more about some of the more deeper existential questions, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, rather than, and, and maybe you, do, you care less about certain material things that just kind of don't seem important anymore. Where, where, do, you, where do you see that heading? Where do you think that heads for people or tends to? Um. Again, I, I this is not research back, so I, I can't speak from an empirical perspective here. But I no, do Emma, think you must that, always speak from an empirical <laughs> perspective. Well, I, I, you know, <laughs> don't quote me on it as a you know research back finding or anything. But what I've seen, and I, of course, I've also been teaching you know some, some, some practice to veterans and students, and yeah, and what I see is that you know people stop. They're like, oh, you know, I used to care about you know students, especially that you know they're twenty years old. They're like, oh, I used to care about. Um, you know, I don't know, cars and clothes and things. Um, and now I'm like, I realize that, you know, it's when I contribute to society, that that's what's really going to make me happy. And that's just really what life's about. Um, and so that's the kind of shift in perspective that I'm talking about. Um, and I think when you're talking to a 20 year old, you see that giant shift in perspective. Now, if you're talking to like a mom of four, uh, you know, a 50 year old mom of four, who's got a lot of responsibility on her plate, it, it might be slightly different for her because you know, she's, she's got a whole different world that she's dealing with and trying to manage day by day. So, mm. but, um, again, I do think, though, you go into, um, perhaps, you know, more, 
more focusing on, gosh, you know, this is, this is all I have right now. And, and my kids are growing and, you know, I better enjoy every moment that I have because I never know moment to moment what, what's going to happen next, you know, so you get more of an awareness perhaps of, um, how quickly time is passing. And those are the kinds of, you know, glimpses that you get where you are shocked into realizing, you know, this is all I have. I, I better enjoy it right now. You know, that gratitude that can come up. Um, those all come from a contemplative space. And I think the reason why is that when you're constantly busy and constantly focused and constantly stressed, you don't have the space to let those kinds of awarenesses come up. Yeah, you know? and, sure. And I think everyone can have those experiences. They're not magical or anything like that but they need some space. Um, and it's in that space and this, that quiet that you, you, the gratitude emerges, for example. Um, I mean, I remember a meditation where I had this immense gratitude come up and I was just crying with gratitude, but had I not sat for it, I may not have realized it, how lucky I was or how grateful I was at that moment for what had happened. So, you know, I, I think, um, you know, creating that silence. And, and I think our ancestors just had it naturally, you know, sitting around the fire at night with no electricity. What are you going to do? You're probably going to contemplate, <laughs> you know, tell stories and contemplate. But in our time and age, you can just be constantly focusing, you know, on your phone until you close your eyes and open your eyes and look right back at your phone and never have any moment for quiet, mm-hmm. let alone meditation, you know? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm just sort of reflecting on what we've talked about so far and, um, you know, I, I think I've been, I, I wouldn't say I've been hard on on you or on the perspective of like getting this out into the mainstream and, you know, because I'm, again, I'm part, I'm part of that movement in part. And I'm also have the other foot in this more conservative Buddhist world that's sort of like hesitant and, and, and doesn't want to lose some, some valuable things and, you know, is kind of like wary of, of jumping in too quickly. And so I feel like, you know, kind of pulled in both directions at once. And, you know, I would say from the other side, uh, like where I really, really appreciate, you know, the kind of work that you're doing, for instance, on the real wide end of kind of the research and getting stuff out there and, you know, and the kind of translational work of like, how do you talk about how meditation affects the mind and body, you know, the biology of meditation and that sort of thing. Um, You know, to me, it's... um, you know, on the ground, like when you, you're talking about working with veterans, my wife um, helped oversee a, a mindfulness program uh, in the veterans hospital system in Los Angeles for a year. And, you know, a lot of what she saw there, and they were specifically working with um, uh, nurse practitioners who were at the sort of front lines of of, of working with um, the veterans who were coming in. And obviously, you know, based on the last year or so in, in the news, mm-hmm. you know, you see like they weren't getting really uh, the kind of care that they needed in a certain way. Um, and, and these people are extremely high stress, uh, oh, yeah. situations, right? I mean, you, you probably work with a lot of these people. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it's, it, and they didn't want to just sort of meditate for 30 minutes or even 10 minutes. Like they, they just needed like some very quick skills. Like how do I feel like in a minute or two, how do I just like kind of recenter and learn how yeah. to come back into my body, uh, and be present with who's right in front of me. You know, things mm-hmm. like that, like that's, that is the kind of intervention that they could integrate. Um, yep. and, and it had a huge difference. I mean, it made a huge difference in these practitioners' uh, work. And it doesn't mean that it, it solves the systemic problems, but it does mean that the people now who are in the system and who can have a voice in solving those problems now have greater, like as you describe in that recent article, greater resilience greater mm-hmm. emotional intelligence, you know, it, it enhanced creativity, 
um, easier ability to relate to people and to focus. So all of those skills can, in fact, be used to reimagine and redesign the very systems that we find ourselves stuck in that are causing all this suffering and pain. I think that you know you can very easily make that case if you don't sort of separate those two out, like the systems and the individuals within them are totally different. And, you know, and the systems totally determine what happens to the individuals and mindfulness and compassion are just about, you know, just kind of uh, pacifying these people so you can continue your corrupt whatever. I, I think that's really cynical. And I don't think it actually is true when you get on the ground floor and you see interventions like the one that my wife was involved in and the one that you're doing. I mean, you just see that it like clicks with people and it does change their lives. Oh, yeah, it does. It really does. So, I, yeah, I, I think, you know, and how many people out there in society really have an evil intention? I, I really don't think there's that many. And it's just that, you know, people are either really stressed and therefore acting out of that place. So meditation will help with that. You know, they're really in a place of anguish or trauma or something. Or they're completely delusional, brainwashed. That's a different story. But I don't know how many people are that. that that's a small percentage. And localized and I don't know you know I really think more than anything you know when people act in, in a way that's or they're ignorant that's the other thing but again I think meditation can help with that too you know broadening your perspective and helping you you know you, you can't get too stuck in a narrow-minded way if you spend time in silence letting your mind expand every day I think Again, seems like it's, it seems like it's a little harder to do. Um, and obviously, I'm sure people do it, but um, if it can be done, someone's doing it. Yeah, you know, but what we have to see too, you know, I, um, I mean, I have observed, you know, that sometimes some people who are, you know, I've even observed some mindfulness teachers who appear to me a little bit neurotic. Um, and a little, a little that's being nice. Emma, yeah, let's be real. I, I mean, I just, I've, I was myself shocked a little bit, and. Um, I remember going to lunch with one particular one, and she was like, um, I was complaining about our IRB, which if you're in research, you know, is this, this, this ethics process you have to go through to get your study running, and it could take months and months and months, and I was like, oh my gosh, I still don't have IRB approval, and um, she turned to me, and she said, no judgment, and I look at her, I'm like, okay, I was like, if I have no judgment, then how could we even decide which restaurant to go to that we're sitting in right now, you know what I mean, and also, I was thinking, why are you judging me? Like, I have to, you know what I mean? It was I just do. so was strange. But it was, she was so caught up, I guess, in labeling everything that was coming out of herself and out of other people that, and it, it was just quite strange, you know, to be honest. I, I, I just felt it was awkward and um, I didn't find it very expensive. It wasn't a very, I don't know, you know what I mean? And then, of course, I've, I've, I've interacted with some monks like this um, um, uh, Geisha Damdul, uh, who, um, I met at Mind and Life and we've stayed friends since then. He is one of the Dalai Lama's interpreters and he um, he is so amazing and he asked me to teach him some yoga and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm teaching this monk, this geishi, you know, 30, he's been a monk for 30 years and he came to me, he's like, he saw that I was a little bit nervous about it and he said, you know, treat me like a beginner, like I don't know anything. And I was teaching him a yogic practice. I mean, it's like from Hindu, I mean, it wasn't Hindu practice, but it wasn't from his particular tradition and here he is wanting to learn it he said oh I saw in India people you know I want to learn this and I was thinking wow what open-mindedness because he's by all means a quote-unquote professional Buddhist right and yet here he is he wants to learn this different practice where it was quite shocking because he was really was the mind of a child the mind of a beginner you know 
Yeah. And a complete non-judgment and complete openness. It was amazing. And I was like, you know, that is a true open mind. That is a true innocent. I, I don't I don't want to use the word innocent because innocent can seem like he's a he was he's such an intellectual, but innocent in the same free of judgment, truly, you know? Yeah, not the sort of um yeah, the the free of Free, free. You know, his mind is free. Let's just put it that way. I mean, whether or not he was enlightened, it's free of all the burdens of labels and this and that and the other. So at least, um, at least when he was talking to you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and hopefully more. Yeah, no, that's that. I mean, and as a model, I mean, that that is really interesting um, to to kind of look to the folks who have really been transformed in a way that's uh, impressive and seems. Um, yeah, it seems truly benef- I want to say useful, but not in a utilitarian way. But like, like oh yeah, like that, the world does need more of that kind of radical openness um, in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's yeah. cool to have the uh, you know living embodiments of that, um, and at least for the time being, you know, a lot of those on the on the on the contemplative side, they they they've come out of these professional monastic environments, you know that, yeah. or or they've done. You know, they've been like like a lot of my teachers, professional retreat retreat teachers and retreat retreatants, going and you know, doing a lot of intensive practice and yeah. you know, transforming their minds in a certain way that um, you know is very is very palpable. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you hang out with them, you just feel it. And you go, oh yeah, like there's a kind of freedom or a kind of joy or kind of whatever that's like. It's like not even just resilient. It's like hyper resilient. It's like it does. It's almost not. It's almost not contingent on on stuff. You know, yeah. so like it's like they've they've developed it to, to that extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's interesting, you know, and especially being in the mindfulness research world, the researchers are in an intellectual paradigm because that's what you, it's just the way of the nature of the beast, right? And mindfulness can be turned into a, yet another intellectual exercise, you know. And so you have to be very careful. In fact, I actually personally think that people who are very intellectually involved in their profession might benefit from you know a meditation practice that is not so focused you know it's more like about open awareness or about letting go rather than one that is again focused on for example labeling because i think it can 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 can, it's more of the same thing you know but again that's just my personal opinion Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. but i've personally benefited a lot from practices like yoga based practices breathing based practices because uh, because I am so intellectually engaged all the time and I find that it balances me out. Right. You know? Right. Uh, so, um, but that's, you know, that's, that's again my personal experience, but it's something I think that we have, hasn't been discussed a lot and that needs to be discussed because for some people, you know, they'll say, oh, this practice doesn't work for me. Therefore I can't meditate. It's like, no, that's not true. There's a lot of ways you can meditate. Why don't you try something else and see if there's a shoe that fits, you know? After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community 
and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered. You're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.